I'm here to tell you of a special show I wrote for Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe and myself. The show, unlike comedy shows of its day, 1954, had no audience. It was written as a satire on the efforts of the Ministry of Works to get rid of starlings on public buildings. The devices they used were hilarious, including the exploding bird line. <laughs> All this I encapsulated in a show called The Starlings. The BBC thought so little of us that when producer Peter Eaton asked for a studio that did plays, which in fact The Starlings was, they said they couldn't release the studio for anything as insignificant as a coon show. Wow. Likewise, an innocent comic mention of the OBE, the sort of adult oval teeny badge, caused outraged phone calls, whereupon the BBC edited out the mention. Big Brother? podcast about the goon show and the goons themselves you're very welcome uh, i thought that owing to the subject of today's show i'd try and insert some bird puns into my intro uh, but i couldn't be buzzard so anyway on with the show joining me today is the writer and podcaster jeremy phillips hello tyler how are you it's rare for me to get to talk about something that hasn't got any pictures ah uh, well there you go well that brings me nicely on to the, the subject of your podcast, which is the excellent Cinema Limbo, uh, which I've been listening to pretty much from the beginning. Uh, in fact, tell a lie. No, I, I think I maybe discovered it third or fourth show in because you covered the Medusa touch, yes. which, uh, which is that fantastic uh, Richard Burton film, <laughs> which is mad as toast, but it's a, it's a fantastic film. Is it Lou Grade? I think so, yeah. It's, uh, Lou, uh, uh, Richard Burton has psychic powers and decides to start Chernobyl five years early. That's right. <laughs> and he collapses uh, a, a cathedral and he kills his mother. Um, he does all sorts of things. Um, no, there's, there's, there's two films, actually, that I was introduced to through Cinema Limbo, which I thank you for, because they're fantastic. Oh, um, one being Targets. Oh, the, yes, that's uh, a great film. Boris Karloff. Was that his last film? It wasn't, it wasn't his last film. His last few films were cheap, rubbishy Mexican horror movies, but Targets was his last sort of thing where he actually got to work rather than just show up and pick up his paycheck. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, where he, he plays an aging horror actor giving one last public appearance, and it's, there's a parallel plot with a, um, a, a motiveless mass murderer. And the, the two storylines converge over the course of the movie. Yeah, this wasn't, this was, the, was that sort of inspired by the Walt Whitman? Walt Whitman, not Walt Whitman. Charles Whitman. Charles Whitman. <laughs> Charles Whitman shootings. Yes, the idea of um, the sort of old-fashioned horror and this modern, frightening reality somehow intermingling. Uh, also figures in a landscape with uh, Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw and Malcolm McDowell. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a weird one. I remember reading about that in... Um, back when Total Film had a, a page where you could write it saying, oh, I remember a scene or something and I can't remember what the movie is. And they tell you what the movie was. 
and they remembered someone remembered a scene of Robert Shaw and Malcolm McDowell being chased along a beach by a helicopter, which isn't actually a scene in the movie, but um, it's this very strange, surreal story of two men being pursued through open countryside by authority figures, and we never mm. find out who they are or what they've done or where the story's set. Also, I mean, yeah, you've covered Family Plot, which was Hitchcock's last gasp, wasn't it? Uh, Sorcerer, and um, the only the only goon-related film I, I think you've covered as being there. Yes, one of the, the first films we did, um, because I, th- I thought that it, it simply hadn't penetrated the zeitgeist the way I thought it should have. It doesn't, it's like something like Network, I think is still really well known, but being there, which I think covers vaguely similar grounds, the power of the media to elevate um, uh, modern day messiahs almost. Um, but it seems to be a very, a very modern film. And the fact that it was over 40 years old, or is over 40 years old now, um, it seems incredible that it's so fresh. Um, so it I is. thought that people needed to look at this film seriously. And the fact that it was Seller's last film released in his lifetime, um, and certainly the last one that he was even happy with, mm. uh, I thought was very much um, worthy of note. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, Seller's... <sighs> You know, the, the purpose of this podcast is is to talk about the goons, the goon show. What's your history with the goons? How did you discover them? Well, I suppose, like many people, I discovered them through my dad mm. um, because uh, he had, a, or still has rather, a collection of uh, audio tapes recorded from BBC Radio of various comedy shows. And two of them were repeats of Jet Propelled Guided Naffy and The Fear of Wages, two episodes of The Goon Show. Yeah. And I remember it was January 1995 uh, when I was 13 years old and I'd been tasked with taking down the Christmas tree decorations. And while I was doing that, I thought I'd listen to a tape of my Walkman and I just thought, oh, I'll listen to one of these comedy tapes to cheer myself up because Mm. Christmas is over. Yeah. Um, And I listened to one of the Goon Show episodes and I think it was Fear of Wages. And it just instantly clicked with me. The, this off-the-wall humour, this sort of re- reverse logic, really <laughs> captured my imagination. Um, and actually, bizarrely, The Fear of Wages is a spoof of a film whose remake I've covered in my podcast. Sorcerer, yeah. It's a great Sorcerer, film. exactly. Mm. Um, I got uh, like a copy of the two episodes as a, uh, a birthday present and then went on to buy the cassettes and then later the CDs, and more recently, I've been buying the Goon Show Compendiums. Um, yes, right, one of, aren't they? One, yeah, one of the the minor advantages of lockdown was that I didn't have anything else to spend my money on. Yeah. So I I was able to get hold of the remaining uh, editions of the compendiums and finish listening to the last episodes in them this week. But um, I remember at school as well, one of my roommates um, ha- was also into the Goon, so we. He would swap tapes and it, it was weird that we were bonding over this 40 year old radio show yeah yeah it's funny but that the, a lot of people that i speak to who are you know in their 30s or 40s or 50s um <clears throat> if they discovered it you know obviously they weren't around when it first went out so they discovered it maybe 20 30 40 years after it you know it was on um very often they'll discover it like you say through the dad and very often they'll discover that a school friend likes it as well. It's, it's, I can think of three or four guests who've said that. It's funny, isn't it? 
yeah, usually they've discovered it through their dads as well. Mm. <laughs> you said you'd like to come on today and talk about one of the more sort of notable departures that the goons uh, underwent, which was the 1954 recording of The Starlings. Ladies and gentlemen, we present a radio programme in English. From time to time, actors will be heard. The author has fled the country. Why the Starlings? What was it about that that you, you wanted to cover that? Well, I um, listened to the Starlings first when it was repeated on Radio 4 in 1998. I remember it was on in a very late night slot. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the thing that really sticks out, of course, is that it's performed as a, a radio play with no studio audience and no musical numbers. So although it has the good humour, it has a very different atmosphere, very much or I think darker and adult and more satirical because it doesn't have that cushion of it's all a fun variety show. This is more like a, a satirical play, yes. like, like Eugenie and Esco or something like that. Mm. Um, particularly with the, the climax of the government deciding that they'll just carry on blowing up Trafalgar Square over and over again until the starlings get the message not to roost there, which is pure Beckett. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think separating that the humour from the, the light entertainment milieu into being more of, of a drama, I think lets the, the satirical intent really take, take flight, as one might say. Mm. Um, but it, it shows off, I think, the direction that Milligan's imagination was starting to go of, of engaging more with uh, public issues uh, and rather than just making funny jokes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is. It's fairly. It's fairly grounded in reality, and it is obviously based on um, fact. But and but there's no there's no huge leaps of logic or you know, defying of the laws of physics or anything like that. And it and it's a fairly linear story, it, as I'm sure you know. Uh, Spike was reading about these local councils all over the country, which have been trying various and increasingly outlandish methods to rid public buildings, public spaces of um, influxes of starlings. So it was like a starling epidemic. And there was, there was all sorts of these you know, weird uh, sort of um, experiments like rubber snakes and um, sonic, stuffed owls, stuffed owls, sonic booms or something. Um, so, you know, like newspapers like the Manchester Guardian were reporting about efforts like that going on in places like Birmingham and Spike was, you know, Spike picked up on this and decided that, yeah, he'd, he'd write a goon show. Well, he'd write a goon show, but it turned out, like you say, it's, it's a radio play. It's a radio, it's not a radio drama, but like you say, it's, it's, it's recorded like a radio drama, um, hmm. different takes. So they rehearse each scene and it's not recorded in front of an audience. So, you know, where they would pretty much do it live as live, um, they had the the room to uh, rehearse and record each scene separately, and then obviously they were all edited together. And it was it was rehearsed and recorded up in Newcastle. Do you know about this? Yes, I read up about this. That um, the the issue was that it was recorded sort of out of season for the uh, the regular show, mm. while Harry Seacombe and Peter Sellers were touring in Variety, 
And the problem, of course, was trying to get everyone all together at the same time. And during this particular week, Seacombe and Sellers were both performing on the same bill, I think, in Newcastle. Uh, well, uh, they no, record. It, it was Sellers and Michael Benteen, actually. Benteen? Yeah. And, I, and I've had this, author, I've had this um, confirmed by a couple of sources. Benteen wasn't with the show by this point. Benteen had left no. the show. Um, but Sellers was actually touring with Benteen. Um, the week of uh, between the 9th and the 14th of August, 1954, Sellers and Benteen were up in Newcastle appearing at the Empire Theatre. Right. And so it was decided that, uh, you know, Peter Eaton, Milligan, Seacombe, and all the technical guys would go up to Newcastle and record up there. Uh, and it was recorded across two days, the 11th and the 12th of August. And, um, and then it was broadcast on the 31st. Um, I was going by the, um, the notes in the compendium set by Andrew Pixley, who says that Seacombe and Sellers mm. were, were touring separately, but were on the same bill that week. So they recorded there for everyone's mutual convenience. Okay. See, it's I... possible Benty might well have been there as well, but uh, it's, it's not mentioned because he was no longer a, 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 an ongoing factor with the show. But in any case, the, the, the Sunday before, so the, the 8th of August, Sellers had been in London. He'd, he'd recorded the fifth episode of um, a radio show called Happy Holidays, which I'm sure you probably haven't heard of. Now. And to be fair, I hadn't really heard of. No, I don't think I have. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was devised by Dennis Main Wilson, who'd been The Goon Show's first producer, uh, written by Jimmy Grafton. And it was a starring vehicle for Dennis Price. And it was right. like it was like a 45 minute lighthearted comedy show with lots of musical interludes. And it was it had like obviously Sellers playing uh, a number of roles. It also had Bill Owen, television's compo, oh, yeah. um, Dick Emery, Graham Stark, Graham Stark, you know, never very far behind Peter Sellers. Um, and it was set in a, a, a seaside resort of Littleton on Sea. And it was produced by Jakes Brown. Now, Jakes Brown later produced The Reason Why, which was the second radio oh, yeah. play that the goons produced. Now, interestingly, actually, I was just I was doing a little bit of research on Happy Holidays, the, the program, just to see. I knew there wouldn't be, but I was just checking to see there weren't any sort of audio fragments surviving. Um, and, and to the best of my knowledge, there aren't. But I did see that there were five original scripts of this radio show, Happy Holidays, for sale online. Okay? Oh. And they were actually producer Jakes Brown's copies of the scripts with annotations and markings and, you know, lots of um, marginalia. Hmm. Um, so these five are on, on sale in the US. So I'm going to ask you, um, how much do you think you could pick them up for? Um, oh, so it's five, it's five as, a, as a set. Yeah, five altogether. Mm -hmm. I would say five dollars. Higher. A thousand dollars. Higher. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to think that it's not worth it. Ten thousand dollars. Not quite. Seven thousand and sixty-six dollars. Blimey. <laughs> so you've sold your car and the children. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, they'll like the workhouse. <laughs> that's that's not worth the money. No, <laughs> I mean, 
BBC Written Records archive, I probably have them, and you can look at them for whatever the entrance fee is. Exactly. How do you arrive at that figure? How do you? Yeah, anyway. But yeah, so so obviously, yeah, so the Starlings were rehearsed on on during this this week, rehearsed and recorded during this week in Newcastle. And then um, Sellers went back down to London and recorded show six of Happy Holidays. Um, just, just, just very quickly, while we're on Jakes Brown, he was appointed the producer of the, the sort of the, the Goons pilot back in 1950-51, which was called Sellers Castle. And, oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and so, so basically they'd written, they'd put together this script for this, program called Sellers Castle, which was going to incorporate, you know, Benteen, Seacom, Sellers and Milligan. And they'd gone and recorded excerpts from this script that they could present to the BBC planners. Uh, or they, they submitted it, I think Grafton submitted it to the producer Roy Spear, and they hoped that Spear would, you know, agree to become the producer for a series proper. But somehow or other, Jakes Brown was appointed the producer of this this pilot and his thing, his big thing was he didn't like recording comedy shows with audiences. Ah. He had this thing against audiences and Grafton and the others sort of argued that they, they felt it would be much better to do it in front of an audience. And, and he was sort of insisting, no, we're just going to record it you know, without, and they, they reached a, a compromise along the lines of we'll record it first without an audience. And then we'll listen to it. And if we all feel that it, needs a bit of pep, we'll re-record re it with an audience. And he agreed. So they did it without an audience. And then he, Jake Brown, went ahead and just submitted that to the BBC planners who <laughs> pr promptly rejected it. <laughs> and um, uh, and Jimmy Grafton never spoke to him again. And, oh. then, um, and then I think Dennis Main Wilson got involved a little bit later and, and the rest is history. Um, but yeah, so it was it was recorded up in Newcastle and then broadcast on the 31st of August 54, which was exactly uh, four weeks before the fifth series began. Just want to read from the Radio Times because when it was you know, the week it was broadcast, the Radio Times obviously carried a little article about it and also um, a synopsis. Um, and the synopsis for it is uh, The Starlings, a comment on the efforts to rid Trafalgar Square of Starlings, written for radio by Spike Milligan. The action takes place in Trafalgar Square in Major Bloodnock's dustbin at a Murmansk beard refinery and in a lonely girl's residential school on Romney Marsh. Oh. Any, <laughs> any resemblance to a goon show is due to the laxity of the producer, Peter Eaton. And then we have the cast list, which is Overcoat Charlie, a beard refiner, Andrew Timothy. The Right Honourable Spurgeon Buckle Bladdock, Harry Seacom. And now in the show, the character's Ned Bladdock. Okay. Uh, Major Dennis Bloodnock, Peter Sellers, Miss Throat, Spike Milligan. Again, in the show, the character was called Miss Perch. Mr. Henry Crun, Peter Sellers, Miss Bannister, Spike Milligan. Sergeant Spine Racker, Harry Seacom. Field Marshal Scott Ball, Peter Sellers. Scrungle Shot Bowser, Harry Seacom. Jim Tiger Nuts Blue Bottle, Peter Sellers. And then Fred, a horse. <laughs> and, that's, and that's it. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's the, <laughs> I mean, that's wildly inaccurate because there isn't a horse in the show. No. <laughs> well, half those characters, I know that there is a, a field marshal and there is a sergeant, but... Um, as, it, as field marshal clinical foot. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, um, I but, find, uh, uh, sorry, around this time, sort of 
54-55, the Radio Times did carry synopses for Goon Shows. Certainly all of most of Series 5 got a synopsis and a write-up. And I, I think a lot of them were quite inaccurate. And I think it was because Spike just didn't, there was no sort of continuity or Spike just didn't really care. He would just submit something, yeah. you know. Um, it was it was it was like a, a vehicle for leftover jokes. <laughs> yes, it's a great way of going. I mean, is 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 there an episode that includes a beard refinery? No. I, I don't think I don't think there is. I mean, maybe one of the missing ones, but I mean that's <laughs> it's a yeah, beard refinery. That's funny. Write it down, <laughs> send it off. Oh, it's the Radio Times, they'll print any old crap, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, in the Radio Times as well, there's this article. Um, it's only a, you know, it's only a few paragraphs, and it's just like basically talks about Spike's inspiration for for creating this, for writing this show. And Peter Eaton, the producer Peter Eaton, is quoted, and he says that uh, it's quote an experiment in goonery. For instance, there's no audience, and we recorded the show in short takes, like a film. I've produced a hundred programs featuring the goons, and I've got a reputation for being pretty hard to amuse. But this show really made me laugh out loud and often. Uh, now, uh, this was actually the the fifty sixth goon show recording he presided over, so not quite got to the hundred yet. But you know, and, and maybe I'm just uh, nitpicking. You know, um, <laughs> so the show itself is you know I'm not going to. Everyone's heard it. Everyone knows it. But basically, various methods to remove thirty million starlings from Trafalgar Square have been employed. Stuffed owls. Wriggling rubber snakes. High-frequency sound beams. Little round things that went knip, knip, knip. Rice puddings fired from catapults. A recording of a female starling in trouble. Recording of a female starling not in trouble. Trained cats. Rice puddings fired from catapults, Mark II. Flashing lights and Chinese crackers. Large things dropped from a great height and vice versa. Failing that, rice puddings fired from catapults. They use noise as part of what they call Operation Cacophony, which deafens everybody but has no effect. And then finally, Blue Bottle suggests this explodable bird lime detonated by sound waves and um, gets very casually offered an OBE, oh, uh, which caused the <laughs> caused a bit of a ruckus at the time because you don't joke about OBEs, certainly not back in 1954. No, I mean, it's like the highest honour you can possibly give to a dustman. <laughs> It's interesting to hear how some of the goon type jokes work in this environment where there's no audience, because uh, for example, there's a point where Ned Bladdock is introduced and uh, Andrew Timothy is over in the Ministry of Filth, Grit and Exportable Heads. Mm. And it's just Milligan silliness. Yes. But it's delivered completely seriously with no audience. So this is, yes, this is a real, it's like panorama. Yes. <laughs> It is. I think yeah. since Andrew Timothy had had he left the Goon Show sometime earlier, and he was now a newsreader, I think. Well, that yeah, that intrigues me as to what because I know he he'd left willingly, <laughs> halfway or, or sort of in the early part of series four, and obviously been replaced by um, Wallace Greenslade, and <clears throat> and I think he just got fed up with doing it. But I wonder what it was that they how they tempted him to to come back for this one. He'd, he'd appeared with them in the film, which I'm not sure if you've seen, the Down Among the Z-Men. Have you seen that? I have, actually, yes. Um, one of yeah. the highlights of Talking Pictures' early morning schedule. <laughs> yeah, it's not very good, but he appears in that and, and has a few, I few lines. I thought it was fine. Mm. It's as a, as a 
a cheapo made in a hurry cash in. I thought it was fine. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, I actually thought it was better than Penny Points to Paradise, which is sort of the other proto good movie, which is really not very good at all. No. I wish they'd made, we've, we've discussed this on here before, but I, I do wish that they'd made more of an effort maybe to capture it, it would be so difficult with it because the goon show was such an audio experience i suppose mm. it is it would be very difficult to to capture that on film i mean the case of the muck battle horn is the closest they got i think it's uh, a pity they were never able to try it with animation yes yeah because the um the telegoons it can, it's sort of getting there because you can have the these monstrous caricatures of the characters but i think with animation you just get that total freedom mm-hmm. of everything and i remember the, the heroes of comedy documentary about the goons on channel four the, the late 90s yes they did they did animation to go with some audio excerpts yes that's like the right. bit of eccles going upstairs in the house and then falling out of the sky because the house was a mirage and he was upstairs mm-hmm. um and doing that in animation and very so quite crude, but it really worked. And you really got a sense of how it could work visually, you know, with a, with some, you know, creative approaches. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I guess maybe if The Goon Show had been 40 years later, because obviously The Simpsons ushered in this animation boom in the mm. 90s, which I guess is still going on to this day, really. Uh, but... These sort of the animated comedies like those, they tend to work more in that they're they're comedies that have elements that could only work in animation rather than being impossible in reality. Mm. Like um, Bob's Burgers, a series I absolutely love. It's quite a traditional sitcom, but it's done in animation. So everything is a little bit more caricatured and a little bit more stylized. But you could do that in live action. Yeah, You couldn't, I think, do the goods in live action the way that you could do it in animation. Uh, yeah, there's, true. there's just there's just not that physical freedom. There are too many laws of physics you have to break yeah. to make it work. <laughs> yes, obviously, like you say, there's no audience. I feel it. I think it's a good show, but it doesn't quite work without an audience. Would you agree? Well, as they say, any resemblance to a goon show is entirely coincidental. So it's, I see it as something that's similar but different, a bit like the. The, the movies, as we just said, they're similar. There are a lot of the same lines in in creative terms and in humor terms, but this is very much its own thing. It's much more biting, I think, in its tone, mm. much more bluntly satirical than the than the Goon Show would normally be. So, seeing it as some um, a bit like the later um, the sort of the post Goon shows that. Milligan worked on like the the Navy show and the Omar Khayyam yeah. show. Yeah, they're sort of they're, they're goon adjacent. You can see the connective tissue, but they're different enough to be their own individual project. So I think the Starlings should be really judged on its own merits rather than whether or not it works as a goon show, because I mean it doesn't have Eccles in it. No, does Blue it? Bottle is a to- Blue Bottle is a totally different character who just mm. has the same name and voice but a totally different personality. Mm. I think there's. It's as though they're using the goons to do something totally different that they wouldn't normally be allowed to do or that Milligan wouldn't be allowed to do. It's a delivery system for a a different concept. Yeah, at times I was thinking it reminded me, particularly when during the Richard Dimbleby sequence, 
it reminded me very much of it. I was thinking it, this could be a sketch from one of Peter Sellers' LPs. You know? Yes, that I noticed that that um, on the CD release, that sequence is the longest track out of the out of the ten that make up the show, and it runs for nearly five minutes. Mm -hmm. It's a very long sequence of of Sellers' <laughs> Dimbleby uh, impression, and. Again, I was thinking for the time, this must have been very near the knuckle because it's only two years after, or less than a, 18 months after the coronation. Yeah. Well, I, wonder, I also wondered why they, because it was interesting that they just kept the name Richard Dimbleby and didn't slightly change it or goonify it, for want of a better phrase, uh, because it would have been obvious straight away to the audience who, who this was or who this was meant to be. It was interesting that they kept the name. I think the, maybe their thinking was that, well, it's only Richard Dimbleby. He's a BBC employee and we'll make fun of him. In the way that they often, in the regular show, would just name check BBC staff and take the mickey. True. But I think when you get to someone like um, the Baroness Boyle de Spudswell, mm. which is clearly meant to be the Queen, mm. that's where you have to draw the line. And, and apparently they got in trouble for that because it was so obviously meant to be the Queen. Well, yeah, the BBC were not happy at all uh and i gather it was there were there were always rumblings about cancelling the goon show by all accounts i think there were 30 complaints before this and uh they were not happy about this this uh, very thinly veiled impression of the queen uh and it was it was only the intervention of john snag who basically just came in and said uh shut it or whatever <laughs> whatever you say yeah. to bbc management back then and the funny thing is it's not even although it's a, an impression it's not making jokes at the character's expense they're having difficulty with the microphone yes and that's just a whole skit and it's nothing saying oh look at this silly aristocrat person it's, no this person's having difficulty with the microphone and so you have then the conflict of the workman coming on and say, oh, I'll just, oh, just deal with these wires here. There, you go, girl. Yeah. And it's, 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 I mean, it's, I would say that it's quite gentle, really, compared to, compared to a lot of the other satirical material in the show, like the OBE stuff and um, the um, people wrapping themselves in the flag and you know, the, the whole thing of going out onto the, the terrace of the House of Commons, and then there's this giant chorus of Land of Hope and Glory. Yeah, yeah. That I, a complaint, but someone just doing an impression of the Queen in a respectful way, that's beyond the pale. Well, yeah, but the, like you say, the, the you go girl line, insufficient deference, probably. It was, uh, it was, because... But, that, but that's the joke. Oh, I know. But, but the BBC management hadn't laughed in their lives. Probably back then, anyway. <laughs> it's like uh, that time an Australian politician put his arm around the Queen to have his picture taken. Paul Keating, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah and the tabloids went berserk, but the Queen clearly didn't mind. And he would have asked first, I'm sure, because, you know, he's a mm. human being and he's polite. It's fine. She's not, you know, a magic blob of light. She's a human being, for <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> Tinkerbell going to get crushed underfoot. Yeah, but also remember Milligan playing. Was he playing the master of the roles? But so he's gonna, he's introducing the the Duchess, and he mentions some TV shows that she's a, she's appeared on. Appearing in a television that your locked 
The, la the last one, which I find fantastically sinister. Why have you come? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Salas does sound like the Queen, doesn't he? It's, it obviously, does, yeah. it's obviously distorted, but you, you 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 could be forgiven for thinking that was at least the uh, highly placed aristocratic woman. I mean, I, I do find that you can you can hear Sellers' voice in his impersonations. You can there's yes. like an like a like an audio fingerprint. You can hear that yeah in all his voices. But I think in this one, it's much less noticeable than in um, many of his others. I mean, like his his Churchill voice. Is it doesn't really? I don't think it sounds that much like Churchill, to be honest. No, but it's but it's a caricature, and you can recognise it from the caricature. Well, even when he does Alec Guinness, you can tell if you didn't if you heard an audio recording of Sellers doing Alec Guinness, you'd know it was Peter Sellers doing Alec Guinness. There mm. is you can tell it's him. There are, there's a few voices he does, which, as in this case, where you might not know it was him, but generally speaking, you can tell if you hear a funny voice, you can tell it's Sellers. Yeah. What right? What is right? Is bird lime? Is that basically bird crap? Is that what bird you know, lime is? For years, I thought it was, and I thought, well, I'm doing a podcast about this. I need to do some research and look it up. It's not. It's a special substance, apparently, that you would paint on tree branches that birds would land in, and their feet would stick. Oh right, okay. So I, I, mean, I can understand why, because they, they, won't, they won't say bird like the, the, the announcer won't say bird like he'll only say bird mixture. Mm. And I thought, well, clearly that means that it's droppings. Yeah. But no, it's, it's something that you would put paint on a branch or a building. They get stuck in it like a glue trap. And then you could take the bird away. So clearly the idea is that it's, they get stuck in it and then it explodes. Which yeah. makes more sense rather than why would they be standing in their own droppings? That's, that's true. Yeah, there's also in this, I was thinking that's a bit, and I can't remember if the, this had been used in a goon show. Well, we, we can't really say before, but since um, a recording of a Nazi rally with the yeah. going see cow. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, the, the fact there's no audience, and that when that recording cuts off, it just cuts to dead silence. Yes. And it, I like how it underlines the fact that it's just a recording. And it makes that sort of that surreal element so much stronger than if it was audience laughter, it would sort of intermingle too much. But just having that moment of absolute silence when that when it cuts off, I think is great. And you bet you think, I mean, it's it's only what nine years, less than nine years possibly since since the end of the war. And since hmm. since people like Richard Dimbleby were going into the camps and you know what I mean it's like still then is it so raw to to have something like that you know uh, yeah absolutely but I mean they they could always have the uh, the excuse that Sellers was Jewish mm. and that That's he true. was he was perfectly happy with it so That's true yeah yeah 
it, it was it was a great get out of jail free card for them whenever they were doing any Hitler or Nazi jokes. Yeah, less so when Milligan was doing them in the Q series. <laughs> but by the, but by that point, I think history had gone far enough, and his version of Hitler was such an absurd comedy caricature. Oh, like usually pies in the face and his wig flying off. Seventy Spike had that white beard, didn't he? And yeah. So his Hitler would have the Hitler moustache, but the white the white beard as well. He, it's he like didn't... it's like Kenny Everett in drag. I mean, he's still going to have the great big bushy beard <laughs> as well as everything else. Yeah, but, yeah, but uh, uh, Kenny did that character. Was it Marcel Wave, the French character who had the Kenny had this yeah. chin mask to cover his it beard? Made him look like, like a, someone who'd been in a fire. <laughs> Welcome to my nutty kitchen. Yeah, I always found the Kenny Everett show very sinister. Did you? There was a, I mean, I was very young when I saw it, and I could never really understand the humour of it. It always just seemed so strange and alien. Oh, well, I know uh, former guest John Dredge is going to issue a fatwa against you for such, <laughs> such heresy. Um, but well, okay, I, well, issue a fatwa against my seven-year-old self. Okay. <laughs> I just good luck to... tracking him down. <laughs> I used to watch it. I used to watch the video show. It was a video show, and just um, I used to like the cartoon because it was Captain Krem, and there was him as the preacher with the big hands. I, I, I used to think it was fantastic. I think that's that's was on before I was even aware of it. I don't think it's really been repeated since then. No, well, it was, you you wouldn't have been born. I think it was late seventies um, when I was yeah. t- I was too young to be watching that sort of thing because you had um, I was going to say <laughs> Hills Angels. It wasn't Hills Angels. It was Hot Hot Gossip, Cleo Rockos. Um, and all sorts. Anyway, uh, there's also the the episode culminates with this this massive explosion all over Trafalgar Square of the of the explodable bird line. Um, but it's obviously far too too powerful when it, it destroys St Martin's essentially. But when and the National Gallery and the whole square, it seems. Um, Andrew Timothy plays this outside broadcast reporter Brian Ginstone. And, and as the explosions are going on, he's, he's reporting back. And then halfway through a sentence, he said there's something, this huge explosion. And all around the cornices of St. Martin's, the bird mixture is exploding and the starlings are being driven away. And I... Oh. And it's, yeah. it's quite, it, it's quite startling, actually. Well, it, it makes me think of War of the Worlds, where you have the outside broadcaster talking about the uh, the strange alien creature climbing out of a pit and then firing its heat ray, and then the, the line cuts oh. off. God, yes. And says, oh well, now hand you back to the 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 Elegance Hotel for uh, Edmundo Ross and his dancing stallions, or whatever. <laughs> uh, there's a reference to Futo, the Wonder Boot Exploder. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, that's that's a recurring thing in the Good Show. I think that, that's that's a yeah. joke that's come up a number of times. Yeah, well, it was certainly it was in the Internal Mountain, which was from Series Four and then remade. It may have, as again, because we don't we can't listen to them. We can't listen to most of the Goon shows that preceded this. It may have been a, a regular in um, earlier shows, but it was certainly it, it was referenced in um, uh, Scratch and the Tuscan Salami Scandal, which were from I think Series Six. And then there's references to like, like I, I spent about half an hour yesterday, which I'll never get back, because they, they make a reference to Richard Winnick and Mark Ludman. 
And at first I thought Winnick, because I knew there was a, a guy called Morris Winnick, because Morris Winnick has been mentioned on the Goon Show. Um, yeah. And he was involved with um, bringing What's My Line to, to, to TV. And he was also... He's mentioned in 1985 as well. So I think he was, some, he was involved in the setting up of ITV, I think. Yeah, he, he, well, he was part of a consortium which, uh, which won uh, uh, an, IT, an initial ITV weekend contract for the Midlands. But then I think, right. I think it collapsed before it came to fruition. There's, well, there's one moment I liked where they're about to start the huge noisemaking operation, which in, in the show, it runs for a full year. That's right. Um, and just as they're about to start, these two soldiers have a bit of dialogue. And it, I liked that it was um, analogous to them about to go over the top. Mm. And I thought, that, and later on, they mentioned the, uh, the First World War for lasting peace. Yeah. Well, that was much sharper and more bitter than you would get in, in, the, in the Goon Show. Because that's not, those are jokes that I don't think would play too well with an audience. Um, and then later on, when um, uh, Ned Bladdock is trying to save face in Parliament, and he's invited to apply for the Chiltern Hundreds, and although mm. I've heard that phrase before, I'd never actually knew what it was. Mm. It turns out that MPs can't resign. No, that's right. They have to apply for a ceremonial position that means that they can't sit in Parliament, and that is to be in the Chiltern Hundreds. And Bladdock says, "No, I refuse to get in that queue." Yeah. Because there were a number of uh, politicians in the government at the time who later had to resign in semi-disgrace. And I looked these up. Reginald Maudlin, who lied to the House about Bloody Sunday, was connected oh, yeah. to the bankruptcy of, of a company that had operated through fraud and was rehired by Margaret Thatcher two years later. Um, Lord Carrington, who resigned as Foreign Secretary three days after Argentina invaded the Falklands. Yeah. John Profumo um, had an affair with a call girl who was also sleeping with a Soviet attaché. And the Marcus of Salisbury, who resigned over the release from exile of the Archbishop of Cyprus, who wanted uh, the, the island to unify with Greece. And by coincidence, he had been rescued from a car crash earlier that year, earlier in 1954, by Ray Ellington. What? What? What are you saying here? Hang on. The Marquis of Salisbury? The Marquis of Salisbury. So his, his, what, his father or grandfather had been Prime Minister at one point? I believe. Uh, that was Lord Salisbury. I don't know if there's a difference. No, I don't know. Possibly. I don't know. Anyway, so you're telling me that this, this Marquis of Salisbury... Is in a car crash, car accident, and Ray yeah. <laughs> Ray Ellington <laughs> is on the scene and drags him from the carnage. Well, I mean, in a situation like that, you're going to want to see a friendly face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could have been worse. It could have been like when Joaquin Phoenix was rescued from a car crash by Werner Herzog. I mean, you know, you think the spectre of death had come. <laughs> could be worse. Could have been Max Galdray with his harmonica. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which. I always ask this question. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there's no musical interludes in the Starlings, but in the proper goon shows, did you did you used to sort of, sort of skip the musical breaks? Um, usually not. 
but that was mainly because I was listening to them on tape. So fast forwarding is just a pain. Yeah, it's yeah. not really worth the effort. Um, some of the, it, it really depended on the song. Um, 1985, I think it's the original version rather than the re-recording, is mm. I think my favorite show. And I think in particular, it helps that it has two really great musical numbers. Um, I think it's Max Geldry doing uh, Apple Blossom and Cherry White, I think it's called, and Ray Ellington sings Shake, Rattle and Roll. Oh, yeah. So it really depends on the song. Uh, there's, an, there's another one where I can't remember which song it is, but um, Milligan joins in as Eccles. Yeah. Come to my tent at half past nine. Come to my tent and have a good time. <laughs> yeah, there's a number of occasions the, <laughs> when, when they would do that. Yeah. Ellington tries to carry on the song, but the audience is laughing too much. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and if you skip through those, then you might miss a little extra gag or like um, the Pink Champagne song where they start playing pop sound effects partway yes. through and making Ellington laugh. Yeah. I ride home on my milkman's pink horse. I am down to earth again. Elephants are at their sink. Also pink. Bubble, 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 bubble. Take a broom myself. Now you're right. So I think it evolves from the earlier days because listening to these compendium sets, I had not listened to most of the pre series five shows before. I didn't know until about a month ago that the Goon Show used to have an opening title theme. Oh yes, mm-hmm. um, and I've been listening to and I've you know I've been listening to the Goons for twenty five years. I didn't know that until last month, and so listening to like, the really early shows, even ones with the, I think is it the Stargazers? Yes, the Stargazers, the third musical act. Yeah, um, they these they, those musical numbers really just get in the way. Uh, just you mentioned nineteen eighty five as your favorite show. Um, is that because of the you know, were you a fan of the source material, shall, shall we say? Or just, uh... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Big up George Orwell. Um, <laughs> well, I know. I, I do think that, you know, 1984 is probably the most important English language novel of the 20th century, but it's also a real downer. So it's quite nice to have a variation on the same story that is written from such knowledge. Like his, Milligan has clearly gone away and read the book and remembered a lot of it in detail and then turn that around into comedy and is making a satirical point about something totally different yep. about independent television. And I thought so a lot of the jokes in 1985 are really near the knuckle, mm-hmm. like the one about um, a Blue Bottle reading the pornography <laughs> and maybe going, give me that book. I want to read it. <laughs> How did that get through? I don't know. I mean, I thought, well, 1980, you know, the, the BBC version of 1984 got through, and that was really tough stuff at the time. And I thought, well, that kind of made it through. So this, this is kind of the same thing. It's fine. Well, that was that was what... Prince, Prince, Cause, Prince the, Philip said he liked it, so it's okay. Yeah, because B, the BBC 1984 was broadcast before you know, 1985. Uh, yeah, well, so, well, I assumed it was the inspiration. Yeah, Peter Cushing played Winston Smith in that, didn't he? If memory serves. Yes, he did. With regards to the goons in general, do you have a, a favorite character or a favorite coupling or pairing? In, in other words, you know, Grip, Piper, Moriarty, Minnie and Hen, um, uh, Eccles and Blue Bottle, do you, or do you have a favorite character per se? 
it's hard to say. I mean, I, I am very fond of Eccles and Blue Bottle because I think they're a very sort of classic comedy pairing in that they're both stupid, but only one of them knows it. Mm. Like Laurel and Hardy, where, mm. where both of them are idiots, mm. but Oliver Hardy thinks he's the clever one. Yeah. <laughs> because Eccles is, is this, this perfect idiot who can go through life, not a care in the world, uh, un- misunderstand everything but still come up smiling. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, <laughs> Blue Bottle is this terrifying, lust fueled, spotty creature. <laughs> Again, yeah. and, and in, in 1985, you know, there's, you know, he's reading this and drooling this, this, this dirty book. <laughs> I think this is revolting. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's some blood knock scenes that I really love because. Of um, uh, 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 just this sort of insight into his world and his life and his his scheming and <laughs> things that I learned reading, you know, listening to the shows, like him sending off for um, artistic studies in a plain wrapper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'd never heard that as an idea before. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to ask my parents about what it meant. <laughs> Yeah, you you imagine that uh, his quarters would smell of oh, brandy and yeast. I imagine <laughs> <laughs> linden trees. Switch on my reading trousers and pass me that book in the plain wrapper, will you? Right. Has anyone said that their favourite character is Neddy? Mm, not not so far, but it's it's kind of taken as a given. I think that he is, you know if not the favourite character, you know, second or third, because he's... You need a central character. You need, you need the, the, the hook to hang everything else on. And he's the closest character to being like a, a normal human being, <laughs> yeah. someone who could exist in reality. But I think because of that, he's, he doesn't have too much in the way of ticks and quirks that make him goonish. I mean, it's, a lot of it, I think, is you know, taking the mickey out of Harry Seacombe. Yes, uh, in, a, in a very sort of friendly, good-natured way. But Ned is, he's almost like the audience surrogate or, who then goes into these bizarre situations and meets these bizarre characters. And as a result, I think he's not less interesting, but he's less memorable, I think. He doesn't, mm. ha- he doesn't have much in the way of catchphrases, for example, or re- recurring gags that, that aren't just... <laughs> opera singing or being Welsh or being fat. Yeah, he's not the straight man, but... He's the closest it has to a straight man, because I think it, it does need that. It needs something to connect it to reality so the audience can engage. This is something I have to talk about in some criticism. The audience has to be able to latch onto something it can mm. recognise mm. in a story in order to actually care about what's happening. And obviously, in The Goon Show, it's going to be crazy and insane and anti-logical, which is fine. But you need that sort of one central figure to to connect with it. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, it, otherwise, it just flies off into the into the stratosphere and is just self indulgent. And I wonder whether if if Benting had stayed the course of Benting and stuck with them, how different that dynamic would have been. Whether perhaps the Osric Pureheart character may have evolved to become the sort of the the central character around which the other characters orbit. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, in a way, it would. I don't. Know, it might, maybe it would restrict 
the kinds of stories they could do if they have this I could, because I mean based on having listened to what survives of, of the the Benteen shows Pure Heart was quite a limited character in what he could and couldn't do mm, yeah. it would seem to be his, his latest invention his latest project and he and the, the 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 fake documentary aspect of it, whereas Ned can just be anything at any point, <laughs> because he's because he's kind of meant to be more of an everyman. Yeah, you're right. So he's character character C. Goody, Samuel Pepys. He, yeah, he, he can he can be whatever the script needs him to be that week. Yeah, uh, this week he's an astronaut. This week he's a caveman. Mm-hmm. He's like he's Mister Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um. But Pure Heart is, oh, he's a crazy scientist. In the same way that Grit Pipe Thin is a con man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a specific role within the story, which is very adaptable, but it still doesn't have the, the freeing sense of he can be anything in the way that Ned can. Mm. Speaking of Grit Pipe Thin, actually, bring, bringing us briefly back to the, the Starlings, did you notice that Ned Bladdock has an assistant played by Sellers, which he calls Mr. Thin, but it's not the voice of grit pipe thin oh, I, I must have missed that that's strange mm. uh, no i don't remember that at all yeah it's only it only has a very brief couple of lines mr thin did you so much as call me sir uh and and yeah and but i think it was the show after this so in other words um as i say this this went out in uh what august 54 and then um the following month, series five began. The first episode was the Whistling Spy Enigma. And I think that was the first show that Grit Pipe Thin was actually named as such. The, the, the George Sanders voice oh. was, was given that name. So maybe the Thin as a name was kind of playing about in Milligan's head at that time. Because uh, it also, it's, it's, it's the Ministry of Filth, Grit and Exportable Heads. So it's oh, all yes. these <laughs> elements coming together. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from obviously the goon shows and you'll have grown up in the eighties and nineties watching religiously, no pun intended highway, no doubt. Um, <laughs> and, and watching sellers films and whatnot. What, what, you know, what things, what, what were you watching? What were you listening to that had the goons in aside from the goon show? Well, obviously there's the pink Panther films, hmm. um, which I, I must've watched at a, at a very young age. Um, but I wasn't really aware of, of Benteen at all, really. I think by that point, his career was winding down or yeah, certainly not, not within my sphere of awareness. Harry Seekham, I only really knew from Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a bit startling when, while I was at school, one of the boys in a year, I think two below mine, claimed to be Harry Seekham's grandson. Oh. And obviously, you know, it was it was a boarding school. People do things to try and stand out. And his last name was wasn't Seekham. Yeah, yeah. So I ignored him. And then a couple of years later, I happened to watch an edition of Everyman, the sort of ethics, spiritual matters based documentary series on BBC One, because it was interviewing Seekham after he'd had his stroke, and it was very much towards the end of his life. And there was a scene towards the end with his whole family. And there was the boy I was at school with. <laughs> <laughs> right. He was telling the truth after all. 
<laughs> I don't know whether how many grandsons Seekin had, but 1989 or 1990, there was an advert promoting the TV Times that Seekin is in, and it's him with his grandson. Well, um, he would have been two years below me, so he would have been... 1989? 1989, 1990, yeah. Been about six or seven, yeah, maybe? That makes, that makes sense. This, this lad would be about six or seven. At the time, I would have been more impressed by him being in an advert for the TV Times. Right. <laughs> Hello, I'm taking a break from filming Highway to take a look at my TV Times. How oh, why not? That's me in the front cover. And that's my grandson, Sam. Came at last! <laughs> Read all about Sir Harry and his grandchildren. Also, you can win a trip to Australia to meet the stars of Home and Away, plus full details of ITV and Channel 4. Sam, where's my TV Times? Oh, look at that. <laughs> a vast improvement. See me on highway, and don't forget your TV times. You made a right mess of that, Sam. Okay, so I think we've kind of said all there is to say at this stage about the Starlings, and, and uh, thank you very much, Jeremy, for, for coming on, and it's been yeah, great great speaking with you. Uh, what's, the, what's the future hold for Cinema Limbo? Well, actually, um, it's quite exciting because we're closing on the 100th episode of Cinema Limbo. Wow. Okay. Um, We've had a bit of a break over the spring. We've come back with a new run of special episodes covering films outside our usual remit, so short films, TV movies, uh, unreleased films, or films that are uh, apparently with no redeeming features at all. Yeah. Um, but for the 100th episode, we're going to cover my favourite film, and I'll keep that a secret for the time being. And then we're following that with a, a run of new episodes up to Christmas and uh, into 2022. Um, the Two Jakes, the sequel to Chinatown, the remake of Psycho, um, Carry On Columbus, and um, uh, the 1984 re-edited version of Fritz Lang's Metropolis, now with Freddie Mercury. Oh, excellent. So um, a, a huge, uh, exciting range of uh, episodes to come. Hang on. See, right. I thought your favourite film was The Saint with Val Kilmer. It's a film I like a great deal, but it's not my number one. Right, okay. Uh, and, and people can obviously um, pick up Cinema Limbo, all the episodes uh, in the usual places, iTunes. Where, wherever good podcasts are sold. Yeah, and you're not just talking about you know, older films. You, you, you're right up to date as well, because you, you, you talk about, I know you have special episodes where you talk about um, the previous year's uh, films, or is it yeah. um, films that you've seen from the previous year? Is that right? Uh, I do an annual review of the year, counting down my top 10 and bottom five films of the year, usually with guests. And I also have a, a video channel on YouTube, Cinema Limbo again, where I do short reviews of any, new, any film I've seen for the first time. It could be a new release. It could be something from the 30s. It could be anything at all. Any feature film I see for the first time gets a, a review. So it's absolute potluck as to what you'll get. Excellent. Great. Look out for that. Oh, well, Jeremy, thank you so much again. Um, I hope to maybe have you back in the future to talk about a film or something, a Sellers film, Milligan film, Digby, the biggest dog in the world, perhaps. Who knows? So speak again soon. Thanks very much. So there we are. Another show uh, in the can. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please follow on Twitter. If you're not already, it's at Goon Show Pod. Also, the Goon Show Preservation Society is at the GSPS. Uh, just on that, if, if uh, you're not already a member of the Goon Show Preservation Society, then please do consider joining because for very little indeed, uh, you get, I think it's quarterly newsletters, uh, which are fantastic in terms of quality and content. 
you also get access to the phenomenal uh, Encyclopedia Gunicus, uh, which I actually haven't got yet, but I intend to get that for Christmas. And it is a massive, uh, effectively a database of everything and anything you could want to know about the goons. It is a truly remarkable resource. And I think uh, if you're interested in the goons uh, or British comedy in general, it is something that um, you really should get your hands on. In the meantime, I will be back next time. Stay safe, keep warm, uh, put the kettle on and bye.